Our scripture passage today is from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, so you can follow along in your Bible. Also, we have Pew Bibles, and it's on page 909 in the Pew Bible that's underneath the chair in front of you. Acts 1, 1 to 3, and it says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. The word of the Lord. You know, I was, <clears throat> I was born in 1967, and I'm always fascinated to go back and look at the world in which, into which I was born. And I recently came across a news article about the alt-folk band from the 60s known as Buffalo Springfield. Because in January of 1967, they released a song that would define the unrest of the American 60s. And it was called, For What It's Worth. Lyrics go like this. They say, there's something happening here. But what it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there telling me I got to beware. There's battle lines being drawn. Nobody's right if everybody's wrong. Young people speaking their minds, getting so much resistance from behind. It's time we stop. Hey, what's that sound? Everybody look, what's going down? You're welcome to have that song in in your head for the rest of the morning. Well, it turns out that Stephen Stills writing that song was writing about some uh, riots that had gone on in the Sunset Strip area of Los Angeles. Apparently, it was a region for young hippies to hang out, and, but a recent city council meeting had decided to put a highway through the neighborhood that was going to destroy all their hangouts. But inevitably, the song got taken up by that generation as a big Vietnam uh, protest. 18-year-old uh, Marine Private Bill Earhart Uh, first heard the song literally on his way to his reporting for duty to go to Vietnam. And he says he didn't remember what the song was singing about, but by the time he returned 18 months later, everything had changed. He said he felt betrayed and confused, and the song had taken on new meaning for him. He says this in the article. He says, every time I hear that song, I think about how innocent I was, how little I knew I had no idea what was about to happen to me, and that's what the song brings back for me. And I'm wondering this morning if you can just relate to that feeling, because I think it is a mainstay of human experience to have a time in your life where you begin to feel like you've been lied to. You, you, you wake up, there, there, was, there was a veil over your eyes, and, and the world just wasn't as it seems, but now, now... Now I see it all. I see the truth, and nothing's going to be the same afterwards. We walk around and tell people, people need to wake up. Stop being sheeple, we say. We need a revolution is what we need. Paul McCartney and the Beatles would sing, so you say you want a revolution. We all want to change the world. When I was in high school, there was a Tracy Chapman uh, folk singer who used to sing, don't you know I'm talking about a revolution? It sounds like a whisper. My guess is if you did the work, you'd find that in almost every decade of the last 50 years of American pop culture, you would find evidence of a longing for an upheaval, for a seismic, tectonic shift in the way in which we look and do everything. Now, what does this have to do with anything? Well, we're launching this morning our fall 2021 study through the book of Acts. 
And I hope by now you've gotten used to my method of study through these books because I believe that one of the reasons why we get lost in the data of the book is because we don't get the 50,000 foot perspective. And I simply want to say that the message of the book of Acts is nothing short of revolutionary. This is the great transformation. We see that it's written by Dr. Luke. We were able to study through his gospel just a few years ago, and it might interest you if you don't already know that the book of Acts is the second half of that book. Look what he says in verse 1. In my first book, Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Theophilus, of course, was the same addressee from the gospel of Luke. So Luke and Acts were intended to be one unified work. But look at how Luke says it. He says his prior book was about what Jesus began to do and teach. What's the implication? The implication is he's still at it. Jesus is still working, but there's a little bit of a twist because we're going to find next week that Jesus leaves earth bodily and goes, to, goes up to be with his father. So the question is, how can Jesus continue to bring about this powerful revolution among souls and societies when he's not physically there? The book of Acts, I think, is the answer to that question. So what I want to look at this morning is how the book of Acts answers that question. And I think the truth is what you see is that every single member of the Trinity is the dynamic actor behind the scenes in the book of Acts. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are working together, weaving together all of their intentions to launch the most profoundly revolutionary moment and movement that humankind has ever known. Look, for three years we've been considering at Christ Press what our identity is. What we're going to do this semester is ask what our mission is. Given that these things are who we are, what are we hoping to accomplish? Well, here's going to be Acts' answer. Acts' answer is that we are going to be participating with the triune God in our mission to the world. So therefore, I want to suggest that the book of Acts shows us three things. Number one, it shows us God directing. Number two, the kingdom advanced. And number three, Jesus continued. What do I mean by that? First of all, we see God directing. Look, even a cursory reading of the book of Acts, you're going to find nonstop how much of the action of the book is explicitly attributed to God's predestinating hand. He is the primary actor in every event of these early Christian history. Just a couple of samples here. Acts 2.23, you've got Peter talking and implicating the crowds for their responsibility when he says, This Jesus, who was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed at the hands of lawless men. Do you hear what he said? Everything that happened to Jesus, including his death on the cross, was exactly what God wanted to happen and caused by him. And, not but, it was you who crucified him, he says. Let's take another example in Acts chapter 4. You have Peter in the midst of his prayer saying, Truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Did you catch that? People did, you know, whatever God had predestined them to do. Let's take another one in Acts 17, verse 31. Paul looks and talks about that he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness 
by the man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. Did you catch that? There's a day when the world will be judged and it is fixed. And God's power is the one that executes it all. Look, I could, I could continue to go with examples of these throughout the book. But the point should be clear. These earliest believing people understood all of their actions in both evangelizing and planting churches as something that God was doing in his sovereignty. And, not but, they saw themselves as vital to the execution of that effort. Do you see the tension? <laughs> Look, on the one hand, when we first read that Scripture te teaches us that God is sovereign over every single event that happens, it's oftentimes the reaction for most people to think, well, if that's true, then why go through the effort? You've, you've heard the question. I mean, hey, if God already knows what we're going to pray, then why should we pray is the objection. And honestly, there's a long history of Bible students who have gone to great lengths to dance around these passages and try to make them not say what they clearly say, mostly because they're afraid that if they teach it, people will grow lazy, complacent because they're not supposed to do anything, right? But on the other hand, if you grew up like I did in a church that really avoided those teachings about God's absolute sovereignty, it produced a certain peculiar character to that church, did it not? Especially in its preaching, maybe even its singing. There was a student who came a number of years ago to the church who said, who summed it up this way, I thought it was fascinating. She said, you know, I felt like when I was growing up, every time I was at church, it really was all about what I was doing and what I was supposed to do. She goes, but every time I come here, it seems like you're more preoccupied with what God is doing and what God has done. I actually think that's kind of fair. But I simply want to establish this morning that the characters that we're going to encounter in this book, they believe both of those truths quite vigorously. On the one hand, the advance of the kingdom of God is their life's goal and a mission for which they should extend every ounce of effort in the achievement thereof. And that God himself was overseeing, overriding, even was the overarching author of every aspect of it. And there was no effort on their part to untangle what at least looks like to our you know, modern mind, this philosophical problem. I mean, I don't know. How do you put together God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? They didn't work on that because the truth of the matter is the Bible always holds these truths together. My favorite place where it does it is in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Paul looks at him and says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For, verse 13, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Did you catch that? I mean, they're right next to each other right there. Not only does Paul say you must work at your salvation and your sanctification, you are to work at it with fear and trembling. That, 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 there is effort to be extended in that regard. And in the very next sentence, he said, the reason why we work is because God is the one who works in you. Not just to do the thing, but also to want to do the thing. In other words, he's totally sovereign over it all. Well, you can imagine early on in my upbringing, this was a great stumbling block for me, so forgive me for laboring over it. But I do believe, I've come to believe, that even though I can't provide for you a very tidy philosophical package for people to understand how they fit together, I have come to believe that I can't live without both of those truths. Think about this for a second. 
If I believe that God was totally sovereign and my actions really didn't matter, I just wouldn't get out of the bed in the morning, right? What does it matter if I do? Does it make any difference what my actions are? But the Bible says my actions matter. The Bible says my choices are important. The Bible says my desires either extend from a heart that is, that, that is sinful or a heart that's been redeemed. The Bible says that my actions have consequences. I am privileged to be an actor in the drama that God is unfolding throughout human history. I can't live without that. But if I believe that God was not sovereign over all of my choices, I honestly still don't think I'd get out of bed in the morning. You want to know why? Because what if I mess it up? What if I make a choice that's a wrong step and I'm unable in my own life to turn my life around? What if I'm stuck in the trap of my own stupidity? It happens often. No, the truth is, I need both of these truths, God's sovereignty and my responsibility living in perfect tension with one another. The illustration fails after a little bit, but I remember a friend and I having a conversation years ago during my first trip through the, uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And uh, he, while we were talking about these questions of sovereignty, he said, look, Les, this is my question for you. Um, when Frodo makes the decision to throw the ring of power into the fires of Mount Doom, who was responsible for that? Was it Frodo or was it J.R.R. Tolkien? And as we continue to talk about it, we realize that that answers its own question because it depends upon whose perspective you're looking at. That is, if you're looking at the story as a whole, you realize, of course, Tolkien was the author of the story. That's why the action happens. But if you're looking from within the perspective of the story, then it looks as if it's Frodo. But it doesn't mean that both are not true. Now look, why are we belaboring this point, especially when it's controversial? We don't want to talk about controversial things. Well, for this reason, because we're talking about our mission in this community. And I would argue that a knowledge and a working, a working love of the absolute sovereignty of God over every aspect of life is the only thing that provides real stability in Christian mission. My old systematics professor, Ligon Duncan, puts it this way. He used to say, you know, the Puritans, some of our theological forebears in American Christianity, he had read somewhere where he said, the Puritans were almost incapable of being disillusioned. I love that. You couldn't disillusion them because whether they were accepting good from the hand of God or whether they were accepting hard providences from him, they were all convinced that ultimately it was from his hand. And what it kept them from doing was getting rocked. You know what I'm talking about? We walk out on a mission. We're going to do this thing. We want to see God work in our community. We want to see people come to Christ. We want to see, we want to see um, oppression gotten rid of. We want to see injustice gotten rid of. We long for these things as God's people. And the first time something hits us that goes wrong, we're rocked. We're on our heels. That's what God's sovereignty sort of moves in us and keeps us from despairing in that regard. So my first thing that you're going to see in the book of Acts is God directing all things. Secondly, though, we also see a kingdom advancing. Because clearly the next major character in the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit. Not a whole lot of other books in the Bible that are more prominently featured the activity of the Spirit. And a little quick cursory look shows this as well. Obviously, in Acts chapter 2, the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, something we're going to take up very, uh, very strenuously here in a couple of weeks. Acts chapter 4, the Spirit shows up and gives boldness to these early believers as they continue to speak the Word of God. 
Third, in in Acts chapter 10, when Peter goes to the house of Cornelius, you've got another outpouring, the the great Gentile Pentecost, right? Where even they begin to speak in these unlearned languages. And of course, throughout all of Paul's missionary journeys, which make up most of the latter half of the book, he's constantly leaning on the guidance of the Holy Spirit for whichever path he should take. In other words, it's pretty clear that the Spirit is the active agent of the entire book of Acts. And we're going to do a lot of deep dives into the nature of the Spirit and what he does and how he functions. But I think what oftentimes people miss is the role that the Spirit plays in the Trinity itself. R.C. Sproul says in his wonderful little book, The Mystery of the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit is the active agent of the Trinity. That is, whatever has been ordained in the mind of God and won for in the heart of Christ is then applied to human hearts by the Spirit. What does that mean for me? Well, it means, very simply, that if you have even the slightest notion to discover or to consider or even to apply Bible truth, that's the Holy Spirit doing that. Those are his motions, his operations. But Acts can very easily sidetrack you from rejoicing and leaning into those moments. You want to know why? Because we get caught up in the miraculous stuff. Bear with me for a second. A lot of times when you jump in the book of Acts, everybody gets hung up on the very extraordinary experiences that people have when the Spirit shows up. We love the fireworks, do we not? People get miraculously healed. People start speaking in languages that they never grew up learning. But what we often miss in the book of Acts is the way in which the Spirit works most naturally, if we can use that word. Or we might even say most ordinarily. And this is what's going to throw you off. Do you want to know when it mostly happens? I bet this is going to surprise you. The Spirit's operation happens through preaching. Now look, it's okay to be critical and be like, I don't know if that's true of you, uh, boring person up there. (laughs) But that's what happens in the book of Acts. You can very much say that the book of Acts is just a series of, 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 of sermons that are punctuated with action in between about how the church grew. Over and over again, we see that the Spirit moves on the tail ends of great sermons. And then think about this. You've got this crazy thing that happens in Pentecost following a 22-verse sermon by Peter. When he preaches a sermon at Solomon's Colonnade a couple days later in chapter 3, we find it's another outpouring. You get another outpouring of a miracle of, of Stephen, the, the first Christian martyr and deacon, sees the heavens opened after a long sermon in, in Acts 7. Peter's sermon to the Gentiles in Cornelius' house is followed by more miraculous signs. So much so that at the very end of the book, you have what we call a bookend. My seminary professors used the word inclusio, but I'm not going to use that word because that sounds pretentious. But did you notice in verse 3 what, Paul, what Luke says when he opens up the verse is, is that they were there proclaiming the kingdom of God. And in the last verse of Acts, Paul, it describes Paul being in prison in Rome. And what's he doing? He is preaching about the kingdom of God and persuading them about Jesus. See the bookend? We're supposed to realize something there. Because preaching is the place where the Spirit is the most vibrantly at work in people's lives. And you'll know when it's a Spirit-filled sermon, when it's about the kingdom of God. Because that's what it was about in the book of Acts. That's the message, the fundamental proclamation of both Jesus and the rest of his apostles. Does that surprise you, though, that preaching is a place where that happens? Some of you, it might not. There's times in which I've talked to people a lot after sermons where they'll be like, have you ever gotten mad in the midst of a sermon because you're convinced that the guy is up there using you as an illustration but never talked to you? How dare he tell them about that, right? 
Or I've had people come up to me afterwards and they'll say, Les, I just need to tell you, last semester you had something that you said in your sermon that was blah, 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 blah. And I, I just need you to know it was the most encouraging thing happening. It completely revolutionized my semester. And I'll nod at them and, of course, accept the, uh, the compliment because I'm looking for anything I can get. And I'll nod at them and be like, okay, good, good, good. In the back of my mind, I'll be like, I never said that. I know for a fact I never said that. I preached it. I wrote it. I did the whole thing. I never said what you, what you just related to me. What happened? There was the Spirit working. The Holy Spirit operating in the midst of people considering his word and bringing in those insights, illumining his word as we do. John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, puts it this way in one of his letters. He says, such is the correspondence between the word of God and the heart of man. And such is the similarity of the workings of the human heart in similar circumstances that a preacher who is just enlightened by Scripture, by the Holy Spirit, while he's doing little more than just relating the exercises of his own mind, appears to many of his hearers to express their hopes and their fears and their joys and their sorrows better even than they could have expressed them to him. That's where it happens. When God puts out his word, his spirit comes along with it. That's why we're, about, we're, we're Bible people here at Christ Prez. Because we believe when we're attached to that, we see the spirit come. And we see him change and bring in the kingdom. Thirdly and finally, we see the third member of the Trinity in Jesus being continued. The story of Jesus continues on even after the gospel of Acts. That's what really fundamentally the work is all about. At the outset, that's going to confuse you because when Jesus leaves bodily at the ascension that we're going to study next week, how can Jesus still be active and yet absent from the church? Well, we're going to return to this topic, and that's why I'm just going to touch on it for a minute or two when we get to the conversion of Saul, who ends up becoming the apostle Paul, right? But in that moment of Saul getting confronted by the living Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, he looks at him and he asks a curious question. Saul, why are you persecuting me? Knocks him to the ground after doing so. And it's as if the apostle Paul is like, what are you talking about? Who are you, O Lord, he says. I mean, there has to be some mistake. I mean, I'm not persecuting you. How can I persecute you? You're so majestic and so terrifying. I wasn't persecuting you. I was after these Christians down here in Damascus. That's who I was going after. And I think there's a case to be made that at that moment, Paul learns the lesson. Because it's as if Jesus is saying to Paul, and it would be the bedrock of every letter he writes in the New Testament, that he says to Paul, Paul, there is no difference between your persecution of me and your persecution of them. You want to know why? Because I have so closely identified myself with them. I have so intimately intertwined my life with theirs that anything that can be said to be true about them became true of me on the cross. Not the leech of which is their sin and rebellion that when placed upon me, my father executed me for it so that I could atone for their sins. Why? So that now, whatever may be true to be said about me, now can be true about them. They're co-heirs with me. That we're, that they were brothers in arms. That we have our heavenly father in common. That they're heir to everything that I'm heir to. Jesus says, so close is this union. Look, do you see the point? Jesus is still at work here and now. And it is our belief at this church that when you interact with the people in this church, 
I'm choosing my words very carefully here. You interact most tangibly with Jesus himself. Now, some of you are saying, what about my spiritual life? Of course that's absolutely true. What about in my imagination when I pray? Of course that's absolutely true. But we function, think of the term, as the body of Christ. Which means that when we cry out to the Lord for comfort, that's probably going to come in the form of another believing person. When we cry out to the Lord for relief, that probably comes through the ministry of another person. And when we look at our mission in this community, we do so only in the confidence that it is Jesus who's moving forward. My friend Rankin Wilburn came to uh, preach to us a number of uh, years ago, and uh, he has a wonderful illustration in his book on union with Christ that I thought was delightful, where he talks about playing football when he was in high school, and he was the tailback, the guy who got the ball the most often, right? And he said there was a favorite play of his because it involved Andrew. Andrew apparently was a mountain of a man. And they had a certain play where Andrew, his right tackle, would sort of pull out from the line, head down the line, do a little quick trap play, right? And Rankin loved it because all he had to do was get in there behind uh, Andrew and good things would happen. Let me let, me let Rankin uh, describe it for him. He said, Coach, Andrew, Coach Junior set Andrew, who's the biggest guy on our team, in front of me as a blocker. And the quarterback would hand me the ball. With Andrew leading the way, one man made the way for another. I was completely obscured by his strength and powerful work, but I was running for freedom. Everything that was supposed to hit me hit Andrew. He blazed a path for me against all hostile forces. He made a way for me to glory. I was hidden in Andrew. You see the point? Look, the fact that Jesus has continued, and we look to see what our mission is in this community, he's called us to charge through the world to a kingdom that he has already won in principle. But as we do so, the difference of, the, the difference of God's people is that we do not do so with all of the worry and the hand-wringing that occupies so much of our public discourse in our day. We look to the community and we say to ourselves, I'm here on behalf of King Jesus. And because he's King Jesus, everything that could ultimately hurt me already hurt him. And so therefore, I'm impervious to your attacks. It can't happen. He has blazed a path through all of the hostile forces, both spiritual and otherwise, and has made a way for his people to come and create glory on the earth so that things can be on earth as they are in heaven. That's the mission. Father, Spirit, Son, God the Father, the Holy Spirit, Jesus, all of us moving. Those are the actors in the book of Acts. And this semester, by God's grace, we're going to dive into it and see what they have to say to us. Come join us. Let's pray. The Lord Jesus, accept our worship, Father, as, a, as an invitation for you to come and overcome us, that you would not just convince our minds uh, or our hearts or even our wills to change our behavior, but that you would lock onto our hearts, that union with Christ would be real to us, that your sovereign hand would be seen in all the fingerprints of your providence, and that your spirit would come alongside us in the mysterious way in which only he can, as your word is proclaimed, to come alongside us. Father, that would be our joy this morning and our privilege as we sing to you, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.